Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside Update, brought to you by InsideInvestigator.org, nonprofit journalism to root out corruption in Connecticut. We have three stories to talk about today, joined by the entirety of the CII team at full strength. I'll also mention uh, that we are hiring as well. So if you are an investigative journalist looking to do this kind of work and work with this amazing team, please check out our website and apply. The three stories for today, uh, first, we're going to talk about a hearing uh, that happened yesterday, uh, Wednesday. We're recording this on Thursday, October 12th. Uh, dealing with the DCF investigation that Mark had done several weeks ago. Uh, we're going to talk about the pension debt that is being paid down. And we're also going to talk about a odd story involving someone getting in trouble with law enforcement over the placement of a grill in East Haven. Mark, you were in the room at this DCF hearing. You said it was a busy place to be. How how was that hearing? Uh, Phil, son? Yeah, it was, uh, it was surprisingly full. Um, and you know a lot of a lot of cameras there. I, I mean, pretty much you know every major news source in Connecticut seemed to have a presence there. Uh, and you know, for people who don't know, this is related to the uh, short-term assessment and respite home located in Harwinton, Connecticut. Uh, over the past two years, uh, that home has seen deteriorating conditions as far as the staff's ability to maintain. Control. It's a shelter for um, girl, adolescent girls who have been removed from horrendous family situations. But there were, you know, numerous incidents of, you know, not just, um, you know, incidents with the the girls themselves, but staff incidents where, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, a lot of arrests, and really uh, pushing the boundaries as to what this particular town could do in terms of their emergency services. There's a, you know, they only have a resident state trooper. They only have two ambulances and this was eating up a lot of their emergency resources, trying to respond to all these incidents at the, at this home. So we obviously did the story about it. We broke the story about it. And from there it's uh, you know, as these things kind of do is taken up a life of its own. There is now a lawsuit against the uh, contractor, which is Bridge Family Center. And for that reason, because of that lawsuit, uh, the Bridge Family Center executive director, Margaret Han, was not able to be at the hearing to you know, answer questions before the uh, Children's Committee of the General Assembly. They sent a statement that the uh, uh, the clerk read out read out loud. Um and so that was that was that as far as, you know, Bridge Family Center was concerned. Uh, then they went right into talking with uh, Commissioner Vanessa Durantes of the Department of Children and Families, who, you know, these teenage girls are in the care and custody of DCF. And so and they're, you know, Bridge Family Center is their contractor. So uh, they were first up to speak and. You know, what was kind of frustrating with this hearing was it was limited to two hours hard stop. And by the time the lawmakers got through questioning DCF, there was maybe 10 minutes left before three o'clock came around. And so we were only able to get a very brief discussion with the um, Office of the Child Advocate. Sarah Egan was there. 
and you know she had submitted uh, a fairly voluminous report on the star home in Harwinton and just star homes in general because there's you know about I think they said about six throughout Connecticut or seven um and so she was able to you know she has this fantastic report that I want to dive a little deeper into um but she was only able to give a few minutes of testimony and then I, I thought what was really uh troubling was the town officials from Harwinton who had come up there uh the first first selectman Michael Chris was there as well as uh, Kevin Ferrati, uh, chief administrator for the emergency medical services in Harwinton. They were there, but they never got a chance to speak. Um, and, you know, it was certainly unfortunate being that, you know, they're kind of on the ground there having to, you know, deal with some of these issues. And the statement from Bridge Family Center kind of, you know, lobbed a couple accusations at town administration and things that they were not able to respond to because it just ended. So, you know, myself and, you know, uh, another reporter from uh, Paul Hughes from the Republican American, we were able to get a couple of quotes from, you know, Michael Chris and Kevin Ferrati uh, before everybody kind of went their separate ways. Uh, so yeah, in that way, it was a little disappointing. Um, you know, we got to her here pretty much exclusively from DCF and not really much of anybody else. And, you know, obviously, you know, DCF admits that there were some, you know, there were some aspects to the Harwinton star home that were outliers, particularly the abuse and neglect allegations. Um, these kind of homes uh, where they're housing these troubled teenagers uh, for people who don't know, they're not locked. Um, the teenagers can essentially come and go as they please. Uh, they're not in jail. So uh, those kind of incidents are fairly common across, uh, you know, star homes in Connecticut. But when it came to the repeated abuse and sexual assaults and things like that, that's where, you know, DCF said that the star home in Harwinton was, was a bit of an outlier. Um, you know, the committee chairs said that th this is the first step. It was just an informational hearing, not a public hearing. And so we'll see if it's the first step. Um, like I said, you know, two hours was certainly not enough time to for an informational hearing to get all the information because a lot of voices were left out. It also seemed like they spent about 15 minutes at the time saying that they only had two hours. The number of times that that came up, I was like, all right, let's move on. Um, you know, I really appreciated you staying later there, too. And uh, in the article that Catherine wrote, we actually included audio from uh first selectman uh chris there as well just to try to flesh this out and i think you're right the two hours wasn't enough catherine when you obviously were tasked with taking this and then writing it and reporting it out does that challenge it for you i mean because you really only get part of the picture at the end of this hearing yeah absolutely i mean when you know they first announced during the hearing that it was going to be a hard two hour i was kind of shocked especially looking at the agenda where they had you know five or six people lined up to speak and we were i think over an hour into it at that point and we were still hearing from uh dcf fortunately mark was in the room um, i believe they handed out a packet of information that included testimony from some of the other people um and and so mark was able to transmit that information to us and we were able to include it 
Um, but unfortunately, the broader public didn't get to hear that information. And, you know, I think this hearing is obviously it's about lawmakers trying to deal with the situation. But it's, you know, also because it's publicly broadcast, it's about the public hearing more about um, this, um, what's going on in this home, too. And, you know, I think it was a real missed opportunity to be able to flesh out more than just DCF's perspective on what was going on there. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, hopefully there's more. I know there was certainly a lot of coverage about it. Uh, I haven't read everything yet, but I'm hoping that some of these other outlets also took some time and dug into some of these different angles and and shared some of the stuff uh, that needs to be heard. There was a, there was a, a, a woman and I believe her husband, you know, at the hearing um, who's, foster daughter had been through that particular star home and they had, you know, they had wanted to testify, but because it was an informational hearing, uh, lawmakers only invited uh, stakeholders, essentially um, people with knowledge of, you know, what was going on here. Um, But they, they had a, you know, packet of what was essentially what would have been their testimony that they were handing out. And that's something I plan to come back to as well. All right. Yeah, uh, obviously, for anyone who's not already subscribed at InsideInvestigator.org, definitely encourage you to give us your email. Uh, We send out two emails a week, Wednesday and Sunday mornings that have our headlines and information. So that's the easiest way to make sure that Mark's follow-up coverage, Catherine's follow-up coverage on this topic specifically arrives uh, seamlessly to your inbox. Um, I I hate to cut this off because I feel like we really could talk about this for probably more than two hours. Uh, but I do want to move on to uh, pension debt being paid down. This is another huge thing across Connecticut. There's a lot of different factors here. Uh, Trisha, you dug into this. Give us a rundown if you could. Sure. Um, I dug into specifically um, a press conference that uh, Comptroller Scanlon's office had um, talking about the the current budget, sort of where everything sits right now. And, and the numbers that they gave out were unofficial. Um, they're going to be certified later and then um, actually released as like solid numbers by the end of the year. Um, Mark has also done a lot of coverage on paying down the pension debt. Um, so he'll definitely be able to help me out uh, with some of the uh, specifics because there's a lot of like specific things that go into the way that the state's paying down the pension debt. But essentially, um, the state has a lot of pension debt. There are two different areas where it exists, one with the state employees, um, which is like 20 something million, 25 million, 23 million, something like that. Yeah, um, that's billion with a B, right? Billion, sorry. Billion. Yeah, I just billion. Sure, yeah. It was um back in the day, the governor at the time made a bad deal with uh, the state employee bargaining, uh, collective bargaining uh, unit um, that essentially put the state into pension debt. And then they just have been, according to um, Comptroller Scanlon, kicking the can down the road um, and letting future administrations deal with it to the point where the, the budget, uh, not the budget, the debt ballooned um, to those billions of dollars. So in addition to the state employee um, pension debt, they also have teacher pension debt, um, which is at 19 billion, I believe. Uh, so I think it's like 21 billion, 19 billion. It's roughly, it's not quite $40 billion. It's like $39.1 billion, something like that, um, in total pension debt. So because the the can just kept getting kicked down the road, eventually they had to come up with, the state had to come up with some kind of rule for how they were going to pay it down because Without doing that, it's essentially like this giant credit card debt and you have to make specific payments every year or else you're going to default. 
Um, so in order to lower those yearly payments, they're trying to make balloon payments on the um, the debt whenever there's a budget surplus. Um, so the state's been in budget surpluses uh, the last few years for various reasons. Um, because of inflation, sales tax went up, so they were able to you know generate more income from sales tax, uh, higher income or higher revenues for the state from income taxes, um, things like that. Uh, have helped there to be a this budget surplus for the past several years. Um, and over the past five years, they've paid about $7 billion in um, in this pension debt down um, because of the rules that are in place. Um, this is where I'm going to kick it over to Mark and put him on the spot to <laughs> explain exactly how that happens, because I know that there are, so there's a cap on how much the state can invest in the rainy day fund, essentially, um, and then money has to go into other places. One of those is the, um, what's it called? Uh, the so, other yeah it's volatility the, fund, the it volatility cap yeah um yeah ba- basically what it what it does is you know when it comes to income taxes on wall street earnings what they call estimates and finals uh that can be a make or break tax for connecticut because when it's up it's great and we have lots of money when it goes down and this this happened i remember specifically back in like 2015 2016 uh, all of a sudden, we're left with this massive, massive budget deficit because we were counting on this money we don't have. So since it's so volatile, uh, what the legislature in 2017 decided to do is, is say, when we have a surplus in you know income taxes from these Wall Street earnings, we take that surplus and first put it into the rainy day fund so we don't get caught with our pants down again, like we did the last recession, where we don't have enough money to pay the bills. Um, and once the rainy day fund is maxed out at 15% of the general fund, then the money goes into paying down the pension debt. And this has worked remarkably well um, the past few years, uh, as the you know earnings have come in fairly high. Uh, like Tricia said, we've been able to pay down $7 billion worth of debt. Not only does that pay down our debt, but it also lowers our yearly payments. I mean, just like your just like your credit card, you pay down a good chunk, your you know your required payment goes down, and that saves us money in the budget just year to year. So so far, it's been a successful program. It's considered one of the fiscal guardrails that the legislature just uh, re-upped this past session. Um, and yeah, I, I think you know it came out of 2017 with the uh, Republicans and Democrats working well together actually in opposition to Governor Malloy at the time. So um, this, is, this has all been good news for Connecticut. And, you know, I think Lamont uh, has done, you know, especially with the teacher pension debt, there was some issues around there. They had taken out a pension bond in 2008 of all times, you know, $2 billion they borrowed uh, to put toward the teacher pension debt right before the market crashed. And that did not work out so well. So he was able to find a way to, to refinance all of that, get the teacher pension payments into a more stable position. And now we've been paying it down by the billions. Um, you know, I, I did an article this week just about uh, Connecticut's total debt. And over the past two years, our total debt, including like we put a bond cap in 2017 as well, it's come down like $10 billion. It's not bad. I was going to. Yeah, so that's. No. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Tricia. No, oh, so no. that was that was the gist of essentially that section of um, the conversation that uh, Scanlon's office was having with um, the press about, you know, the state's 
doing a pretty good job in paying that debt, but also the debt is still very large. And they will never know, like, if next year we're going to have the same budget surplus, if next year we're going to have the money to continue paying it down, like we could end up going into a deficit in a few years, you know. Um, so there's always that chance that that's that the money isn't going to be there. Um, I know this year they paid uh, $1.3 billion into the two different pension funds um, and were able to pay it down that much, which lowers the annual rate. Um, I think it was a couple hundred million dollars. Um and in, in total payments that they have to make every year. Um, so that, you know, that was definitely good. Uh, so that was that was sort of like that that big chunk. The pension debt um, stuff was about half of that that presentation. And just to just to put it in perspective, the uh, by Governor Malloy's own admission, the two tax increases in 2011 and 2015, every mm-hmm. dime of that went to pay for the pension debt. Yeah. Like that's how that's how big it was getting and what a problem it was becoming. So seems like we have things under a much better, you know, sense of control now. It's exciting. Uh, headed in the right direction. I mean, obviously what the article that Mark was alluding to that he wrote yesterday, uh, again, that's uh, Wednesday, October 11th, was that Connecticut ranked 49th uh, for taxpayer debt despite improvements is the headline and, you know, beat out New Jersey. Uh, so uh, there you go, 49 out of 50. I'll also point out, you know, Wallet Hub does their uh, 2023 best and worst state economies. And, you know, Connecticut is in the middle. Uh, it's 24th. So I think that there, there are some positives there uh, across the board. Um, Catherine, I know you've written on stuff uh, on this topic previously. I, I Not to turn it into a debate style anything, but I want to at least give you the opportunity to either comment anything related to that, or if you want to tell us about this grill situation in East Haven and jump right in there too, I wouldn't blame you one bit either. Well, I'll say my grandmother does have a teacher pension in Connecticut, so I'm going to refrain from commenting on that <laughs> subject. And let's just talk about people going to jails over placing their grills too close to their residences. Um, so this is kind of a, a weird little case. And if you're, you know, a law geek, it's a really interesting one. Um, you know, basically, it involves a gentleman who lives in East Haven who, you know, after a bunch of back and forth with um, the town fire official um, is facing uh, criminal charges and potentially jail time over allegations that his grill was placed too close to um, to a residential building. Um, he lives in a condominium complex. And part of what's at issue here is his residence in the condo complex is single unit. So under, you know, the way the fire code is written, um, there's specific language that's in contention, um, which says, quote, that all building structures and areas adjacent to such buildings and structures, except in private dwellings, occupied by one or two families upon all premises. And it's that upon all premises phrase that's really the source of contention here. So basically, this gentleman and his lawyer are saying, hey, he lives in a single family unit. The fire code doesn't apply. You can't enforce this. You can't send him to jail over that. And the state is saying, well, no, upon all premises means you might live in a single family unit, but that single family unit is in a larger condo complex, which I believe has something like 75 um, different residences in it. So because it's part of that larger unit, we can regulate this. Uh, We can regulate... um, or we can press charges against you for violating this code, and it does apply to you. Um, and so that's really kind of the crux of what's going on here. Um, there have been uh, two motions to dismiss the case that have been um, unsuccessful, and uh, there's a possibility that this may go to jury trial. <laughs> oh, 
are we talking about like a charcoal grill, a propane grill? I mean, is it just as Weber sitting on his back porch or, you know, what's the deal? Yeah, I believe it's either a charcoal or a propane grill. It's not specified. Um, I know at one point the um, the East Haven Fire Department did ask for clarification from the state um, about their interpretation of the fire code. Um, and they had said that you can have an electric grill um, closer to your premise. So it's not that type of grill. So I, I think that would have to mean it's probably either propane or charcoal. So not a, not a George Foreman grill, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think it's a George Foreman grill. There, there was a... Um photocopied image in the uh documents too that was it was pretty you know photocopy it's an old technology it's not like they were doing digital uploads but it did appear to be propane from the way that the the hood was set up and you know it's just i mean how far away from his house does it have to be i mean according to the fire code it needs to be at least 10 feet 10 feet Right. So basically, the grill was placed up against a set of um, um, stairs, allegedly, at least according to um, the affidavit that was part of the um, application for arrest for this gentleman. Um, and so, you know, they're claiming that that his his grill was too close. And, you know, basically, he could go to jail over the fact that his grill was within 10 feet of a building, which, you know, he and his lawyer are saying, you know, and probably rightly is seems like kind of a ridiculous um, use of the judicial system, uh, you know, especially this is in East Haven. So we're talking about, you know, an area that is not untroubled by by other criminal activity. Huh. That's fascinating. I mean, what just out of curiosity, because this just seems like the most odd. Why didn't he just move the grill? Well, see, and this is part of, you know, if you read um, the affidavit, there's kind of a long history. And initially he did move the grill, um, but also, you know, challenged the fact that because he's claiming that his unit is single residence, um, that the fire code shouldn't apply to him. And so then moved the grill back towards the building. Um, and ah. I think part of that history of this repeated, you know, uh, set of incidences that this gentleman has had with the fire department might play some role in the fact that they decided to arrest him over this. Mm -hmm. Ah, it's pro it's, uh, it's a, a grilling protest, essentially. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking around here. I think I have two copies of Thoreau's civil disobedience within arm's reach right now. Uh, probably have relevant quotes to come out of there. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. So legal technicalities. We're going to see how this plays out. I don't know. If, uh, you know, obviously, uh, it may or may not be worth a follow up. But uh, we're also trying to do more to uh, update people on these kind of one off things on our social media as well. Uh, some folks in Connecticut uh, that we would love to emulate are, you know, tracking stories and informing people in real time. Trisha did a great job with this at a, uh, a press uh, conference she was at the other day for uh, solar power and wind and um basically how that's going to work. You did two articles off of that. I don't know if that's a relevant tie-in you wanted to mention there, Tricia. I mean, the it's, it's basically the future of offshore wind in Connecticut, which um, Governor Lamont's administration is really hoping to invest in, um, which is definitely going to have people either very happy if they're very into clean energy or very upset if they're not really into helping other states with their clean energy goals, because the the state peer project, which has a lot of people, you know, up in arms and, and concerned, um, is the first place that it's supplying turbines to will not power Connecticut, it's going to power New York. Um, but the state, I, I believe, is hoping that investment in clean energy is going to allow Connecticut to um, have some kind of like 
energy position in the country. You know, you have like West Virginia or Texas with oil and coal. Um, and as those as fossil fuels become less popular or possibly less available, um, I think the governor is hoping that Connecticut's access to offshore wind um, and the ability to like invest in offshore wind and like like create jobs to create turbines or build turbines or possibly run certain companies will um, will make the state more um possibly like it's basically like early investing in something he's hoping will become much more popular and much more useful later um so it that's one of those things that remains to be seen there wasn't a ton of information about exactly the plan to go you know use those things but it was definitely uh you know we're excited about this industry and we hope that it will be beneficial to the state um but yes there are two stories one about the actual press conference and what they announced and then one about just how the heck offshore wind farms work um in case people are curious Absolutely. And you did live tweet the press conference. You got great did, photos. Yes. The scale of the operations kind of blew my mind. I didn't quite understand that without without the work that you were doing visually. Yeah, I mean, I feel like people have seen a wind turbine in like in some kind of setting, right? Like I, probably on land, like landed turbines. I feel like people see all the time. I drove through like a terrifying field of them in Iowa in the middle of the night because they've got these blinking red lights. And I was like, are we about to be abducted by aliens? Um, because it's just like this huge number, vast number of them and these like looming shadows in the dark. But you don't really understand how big they are until you're standing next to like just one blade from the turbine. And it's like at least a football field long. I find them so hypnotic. They yeah. are, yeah, they are. <laughs> Except when they're staring at you looming in the darkness yeah. of an Iowa prairie. So. All right. Well, cool. I know uh, Joe is probably giving us the uh, hand signal here that we've gone over time. I really appreciate each of you uh, making time in your morning to talk about this. Uh, as always, what we talked about today is just a sliver of what we publish on InsideInvestigator.org. A huge thank you to our donors and each of our subscribers whose support allows us to do this work. Thank you for watching Inside Update to all of you here. We'll be back in two weeks. And until then, be well, stay safe, and stay informed.